inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Welcome. I'm happy you're here. Now today we have, let me see, I already forgot, nine questions. So without further ado, let's get into them. Now, the first question says, hey, friend. I really like the way that started. So hi, friend. It says, here's my question. Is it okay if I never want to stop going to therapy? Hmm. It's not an attachment thing. I just truly enjoy having a safe, neutral place to drop my baggage off every week. I think I'm a lifer, but is that a bad thing? Thanks for your videos. Always fun to listen to. And there are some comments on this as well. There's nothing wrong with continuing therapy forever. I have friends who've been in therapy for like 10, 20 years, and I don't see it as a bad thing unless there's some attachment issue or we don't feel that we're able to do any work outside of therapy. Then I would think maybe we need a higher level of care. Those are the things that I would take into consideration. Overall, I don't think it's wrong to not want to stop. We just have to be cognizant and take some time to maybe be a detective about why that is. And once we kind of know and we realize it's if, if it is based in something like attachment or it's based it's like a trauma response or maybe it's uh, because we need a higher level of care. If any of those things are happening, then there's an issue and then there's something that's wrong. But just wanting to continue therapy isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. So I think that that is totally a fine thing, especially since we don't think it's coming from any place other than the fact that you just like having a place to drop off your baggage. And I understand that as well. Now, there was a comment on this says, hi, Miss Katie. Um, oh, should we stop going to therapy? Sorry, the typo and it confused me. Should we stop going to therapy at some point? But when do we know that we are ready to let go when we don't have any support outside of the therapy's room? I've been in therapy continuously for five years, except for two months. I took a break from it because of an email I sent to my therapist and then I regretted it. I was afraid to face him. I only giggle because people do that. And trust me, we've had other things happen and it's not that big of a deal, which is probably why you're back in therapy. Sometimes I wonder if I should stop and yet I'm still going because I'm not sure if it's helping or not. I'm not sure if therapy is for everyone and yet I keep on going. Now, the goal of therapy is to not need it anymore. Let's just get that straight. However, sometimes if we just look for a place to vent and to talk about things each and every week and we find that really beneficial, I don't think there's any harm in that. But if you've been in therapy continuously for five years and you don't really feel like it's helping or not, that doesn't mean that therapy is not working for you or that it's not for everyone. I think it's more that maybe you just need to find a different therapist who's a better fit because that doesn't sound like it's a good use of your time or money. And at that point, five years in, I feel like you should know if it's helping or not. FYI, I think everyone should feel some kind of alleviation of their symptoms within like the first four to six sessions. If you hear a slight dinging, it's because my dog is hitting her doorbell and she wants out <laughs> or she wants attention. She does both of those things. Um, but anyway, those are really my thoughts. I don't think I don't think that therapy is not for everyone. I think finding the right fit can be tricky and it can take us a little while to find a therapist who truly gets us. And so I don't think you should uh, stop therapy, but you might consider not seeing that therapist anymore and getting a referral to someone that's a better fit that maybe pushes you a little harder or is more specialized in what you need or maybe can offer that tough love that this therapist doesn't. And that's why you haven't made progress or, you know, maybe you need to put more effort into therapy. I don't know, but 
the fact that you're not sure it's helping or not, and you've been seeing them for five years, I'm very suspicious about that. And that's not how therapy should be. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, happy new year. Happy new year. It says my therapist recently told me for the first time that most of my relaxation methods have a self injurious character. However, I don't intentionally self injure. It tends to happen unconsciously. For example, the bathwater will be too hot or things like that. And because of my issues with depersonalization, I don't realize that something was self-injurious until I reflect on it. I would like to stop this behavior, but it's quite difficult for me to do so because I rarely recognize these situations early on. So my question is, how can I find out within a situation or perhaps beforehand that an action is self-injurious? In case it's relevant, I do have dissociative amnesia. That's when we can't remember swaths of time because we were dissociated. I struggle with depersonalization. That is when we are kind of out of self. I can feel like we're kind of watching ourselves go through our life and generalized anxiety disorder. And I, uh, oh, and I have pure O traits. Now, pure O, if you don't know what that means, that's relating to um, obsessive compulsive disorder, otherwise known as OCD. And pure O means that we have a lot of like mental uh, compulsions that we do so that we like obsess and we have to do things mentally. Maybe it's like sounding something out or spelling something out or thinking about something in a certain way in order to alleviate that anxiety. Okay. And I have a video about it. If you want more information, you can search on YouTube, put pure OOCD, Katie Morton, it'll pop up. Um, anyways. Okay. So to get into this question, there's some comments on this as well. Um, how do we know if a situation or something that we're going to do is going to be self-injurious? The best thing we can do when we find ourselves not being aware is taking stock of what we do know after the fact. So like you said, the bath water is often too hot. Okay. So that's something that we're aware of. When we go to try some of our relaxation methods or things that we're going to do to cope, are we doing them soon enough? Because if we are doing them soon enough, we should have the wherewithal or the ability to notice if the water is too hot and be able to make those decisions. If we're not able to, that means we need to start doing our coping skills or our relaxation things earlier. Does that make sense? Because if we feel like we're too spaced out already by the time we're doing it, it's too late and we're not going to be able to change anything. Unfortunately, being in dissociation as a therapist, I'm kind of not helpless, but there's a lot that I can't do to support you until I get you grounded. And so the only things I can do are things to try to move you back into your body or your environment by, you know, different grounding techniques. I won't get into those, but those are the things that we would need to do first before we try to recognize if something, you know, if the water's too hot or something like that. And so use my real advice is to use information that you have about past things that you've done, past coping skills or relaxation techniques that you've used and why, you know, have your therapist work with you. Like, are, was that an unintentional self-injury? Like I've had patients um, do all sorts of things that are kind of self-injurious. It, it's, it can be like the bathwater being too hot, but it can also be like doing something to harm a relationship, even though that's not the goal. It's like, we don't know how else to cope with what we feel and we take it out on someone else. And that's almost for a lot of my patients can be like self-injury because that's the one support they have, or we cannot eat, you know, longer than normal or overeat. And it's not done in an eating disorder fashion. It's done in a self-injury fashion or not taking medicine. Or, and there's all sorts of ways we can do things, you know, that are self-injurious that might, we might not right away assume as self-injurious behavior. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And so anyway, my advice to you is to find ways to ground 
like the grounding techniques. Uh, some common ones are counting colors. You look around the room, how many things in this room are blue, brown, black, whatever. Then going through the ABCs, what's in the room starts with A, B, C, whatever. Some people like to snap rubber bands. If we have a history of self-injury, I'm not always a huge fan, but it's worked for some people and I don't knock it until somebody tries it or they tell me otherwise. Changing the temperature, like splashing cold water in your face, things like that. Those can all be helpful. And once we can, once we're effective, at removing ourselves from that dissociative space where we feel uh, you know disconnected from self then we can actually take certain behaviors or take action i guess to not make them self-injurious to touch the water before and put more cold in or let some water out and put cold in or to make sure that that isn't on too tight or we have eaten in the last three to four hours or whatever it is that we're kind of doing that has that kind of self-injurious flair to it, we um, we can check in and make sure that it doesn't. And it also might be helpful, and this is kind of separate from your question, but it might be helpful to understand why we're doing that. Because if we struggle, I don't know if it says if you struggle with self-injury um, in general, but it but I'd be interested as to why, like why that's happening, you know, and it what's triggering it and what what your thought process is, if you're aware, you might not, but I am always curious about things. It never hurts to be curious to ask some questions about it. So it could behoove you to take some time and think about it yourself. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, hi, I don't know if this is this add-on is related, but I always wondered if there are other kinds of self-harm besides being physical, mm-hmm. like emotionally. Yep. Can we self-harm ourselves on the emotional level? Thanks. Yes, we can. Like I said, we can sabotage relationships and do other things to kind of hurt ourselves. Um, That's why a lot of my borderline personality disorder or BPD patients will not struggle with self-injury anymore in the physical sense where they're not like burning or cutting themselves or doing something else. However, they've like fought with a lot of people in their lives and done other, we call it splitting. It's when people are all good or all bad and they can do some of that behavior to like throw a rift in their relationships, which causes them emotional distress. And then for a lot of us, the self-injury is kind of boiled down to us feeling like we're not good enough or we're deserving of the pain. And so if we don't give ourselves the pain through what we would normally consider self-injurious behavior, we'll find other ways to give ourselves that pain. That's why I talked about like not taking medicine when you're supposed to, you know, eating irregularly, overeating, undereating, stuff like that. Wearing things that even uncomfortable. I had a patient who used to wear clothes that were undersized on purpose kind of as a way to make herself uncomfortable, not going to the bathroom for long periods of time. There's a ton of different things we can do. And that's more physically. I know this person's talking emotionally, but there are a lot of ways we can harm ourselves. And so, yes, I do believe that we can trade self-injury in one way for another and do it emotionally. Um, And we can even like harm ourselves with the way that we think and things that we do. And that could be an emotional self-injury too. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Now there's another comment. It says a few years ago, I used to pull out all of my, or I used to pull out my hair for hours every day. Would that be considered a relaxation method with a self-injury component as well? Good question. Or is that, or is that even trichotillomania? For me, it started out as obsessing over the split ends of my hair and pulling them apart. I had a friend that used to do this in high school. It was comforting and relaxing to me. I ended up doing that for hours and hours, and at some point it turned into pulling specific strands of hair out. I started noticing that I developed some bald patches on my scalp, and I was so embarrassed, but I couldn't stop. I went back to obsessing over the split ends of my hair rather than really pulling it off, and unfortunately the hair did grow back, and fortunately the hair grew back. 
I almost read that incorrectly. After two years or so, I cut my long hair off, mostly because I thought it would help me stop obsessing, but it didn't. Yeah, it doesn't. I couldn't use the hair on my head, so I just switched over to pulling my arm or leg hair. Very normal. Um, I've done this for almost two years, and now, even when I try really hard, I can't stop. What should I do? Is this a weird thing to do? I'm so ashamed. This is not a weird thing to do, and there is no reason to be ashamed, but I, I understand that kind of shame spiral that you can get caught in. What is happening is trichotillomania. Now, I have a video about trichotillomania, and it's a fancy DSM word for hair pulling disorder, and it's when it's usually, I don't know if it's actually, I'd have to look at the DSM, but I believe it's a, it's under anxiety disorders, but it might, they might not blanket it or put it under that umbrella, but I do. Same with excoriation or skin picking disorder when we pick at our skin. Trichotillomania, the way the person's describing it, how they could feel the split ends and they would pull out certain hairs. It, it, my friends who have trichotillomania and other viewers and people in our community who've been so wonderful to share their stories have talked about how it just feels off. That hair doesn't feel right and it must come out and we pull it. And <clears throat> the reason that I say it's an anxiety disorder is because those of us with trichotillomania can feel super, super anxious and it is soothing to do that. And the pulling of the hair can be kind of a self-soothing. Now it's usually on your head. That's the most common. So eyebrows, eyelashes, hair on your head but I've had pay, uh, patients pull armpit hair, leg hair, arm hair, <clears throat> all that stuff, um, just in an effort to like move it from their head. Or I don't think I've ever had anybody have their arms or legs be the first place that they pulled when it came to their trichotillomania urges. But I just want you to know that we can pull hair from wherever, but the most common is hair on your head, meaning like eyebrows, eyelashes, and hair on your head itself. So what you're experiencing is trichotillomania. It's very common. And if we can treat that anxiety, in my experience, if we can find ways to better soothe our system, and it could be medication-based, it could be behavioral techniques you get from your therapist. I find cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT to be incredibly beneficial. Um, also, DBT, to be honest, can be really helpful for those of us with high anxiety. Those are all things that can really benefit us and help bring that anxiety level down and hopefully remove the urge to pull our hair. Um, yeah, but it's really common. Nothing's wrong with you. It's okay. We can figure it out. It is trichotillomania has a name for a reason because people struggle with it. So you're not alone. Okay. Now there was another comment on this, actually a couple more. It says, I hurt myself by withholding food. Yes. Just like I said, I just can't stop. And I feel so much better when I'm restricting my intake. I'm guessing this is a form of self-harm. However, I thought it was more normal to purge and overeat. No, no. We can do it either way. Just And this also kind of sounds like an eating disorder. And sometimes it can be hard to tease out what's an eating disorder and what self-injurious behavior through food intake. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes they're the same thing. Because if we consider self-injury and eating disorders both as coping skills, right? It's not about the fucking food. It's not about actually cutting or harming myself. It's about what that offers to me, which is usually a distraction or a relief from what's going on in my life and in my head. It's so overwhelming. I'm going to overeat till I can only think about how full I am, or I'm you know, going to obsess over the food that I'm going to eat and create this ritual around it. So I don't have to think about what happened. Or <clears throat> on the flip side, I'm going to restrict until I all I can think about is food, right? It's the same outcome. That's why I don't enjoy, I actually really hate it, not don't enjoy, that's like being way too nice. I hate it when insurance companies don't want to cover binge eating disorder. They only want to cover anorexia, nervosa. They don't want to cover bulimia or, you know, OSFED, which is like, you know, otherwise specif 
specified feeding or eating disorder, just kind of like a catch-all for any other eating disorder behavior. Pisses me off because eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. So anyway, that's a topic for a whole nother, a whole nother podcast or a whole nother video maybe. But I want to tell you that this withholding food, and you said you feel better when you restrict your intake, sounds like an eating disorder. And it also sounds like the purpose of your eating disorder is to harm yourself. And maybe you feel like you deserve to be harmed. Maybe that distraction and restriction takes your mind away from other things going on, or maybe all of the above. But yes, that's, um, it's not more normal to purge and overeat. No, it can be done in a lot of different ways. Purging and overeating can be self-harm behavior or eating disorder behavior or both. And so can restriction. Now there was another comment that says, hi, Katie, to add on, could self-sabotage be considered a form of self-harm? Thank you. Yes. Just like I said, we can sabotage our relationships or our own life as a way to emotionally self-harm. Now I know a lot of people are probably thinking, well, then isn't everything we do self-injurious behavior? Uh, no, if we're actually taking care of ourselves and doing some things that are loving and wonderful, no, but we all have a lot of self-injurious behavior and urges that through because society can be so negative and and just so false we can believe that that's normal then it's normal to sabotage my relationships or my job or my progress like a good example of someone who sabotages maybe it's because sean and i are rewatching seinfeld but george from seinfeld is a classic emotional self-injurer and i believe it's because his parents are kind of like emotionally abusive and i don't think he feels good about who he is and so he wants to prove that to himself by harming and injuring every potential for his life to get better. And so, yes, doing things like that can be emotional self-harm. Okay. Now there was a one more comment and it says, I often escape uncomfortable feelings by switching it all off and just feel okay or numb instead. And then I slowly come back. Is this also a bad thing? My therapist said it's protective. It's a protective coping skill, but didn't really understand if that means, oh, I didn't really understand if that means that I should keep doing it or if I should stop. Now, this is a great question because if we switch everything off to escape uncomfortable feelings, it's definitely a protective coping skill and it's not helpful at all. But it used to be helpful and it might, that's a lie. I don't want to say it that way because it's not that it's not helpful at all. It's that it's only holding you back in your progress in therapy and for you to have a better life. Does that make sense? Because the way it helps is by giving you a break from how you feel, right? These uncomfortable feelings, aka probably all feelings, are too much. And so we get to not feel them. We get to switch it all off. And that feels amazing, or it actually doesn't feel like anything. So it's better than feeling the other stuff, right? It's helped us in the past and it saved us. However, at this point, all of this stuffing down and numbing now is catching up with us. And that's why we can feel really emotionally volatile. Like it's really common for those of us who struggle to even acknowledge a feeling we're having. We can like feel tilted. Like one one minute we feel fine, next minute we want to cry. Then it's like, we, people can just set us off and we can be irritable, can, you know, feel really anxious when we do go to sleep in the day, we feel super depressed. We can just feel all over the place because we're just numbing out instead of tapping in. Is tapping in really uncomfortable? Yes. Does that mean it's not worth it? No. 
It's still worth it. And so that did benefit you. And it was a thing that you did. I don't like to call them good or bad things, but it's something that helped you for a while and it's not helping you anymore. It's hindering. And so it's something that we're going to have to try to find a way to, to like manage and stop doing slowly. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi there. Howdy do. It says, how can those of us who can't remember our trauma feel validated? I feel like there are no communities for people like me who are scared and experience trauma responses, but don't have the memories to talk about the trauma. I've been doing trauma work for years and my therapists have continually reminded me that we can still honor the trauma responses without, without talking about a specific memory, but I still feel so alone in my struggles. I feel like everyone except me can remember at least a piece of their trauma, but I got nothing. Additionally, while I know intellectually it's true that memories aren't necessary in order to process trauma responses, I don't truly feel like that's true for myself. I feel like I'll always be holding out for a memory. I experience body memories, there you go, emotional flashbacks and dissociation, but I feel like I'm just being dramatic because I have no evidence to support these reactions. This leads me into a self-deprecating spiral because what kind of person makes this stuff up, you know? How can I trust that my responses are valid and let go of this narrative that I'm making these things up for attention? And how can I feel less alone in my struggles because of my inability to remember what happened? Thanks for your podcast. You're helping so many of us. Oh, of course, of course. I'm so glad. What a great question. Now, the truth of this is those body memories, emotional flashbacks, and dissociation are your PTSD. That is your trauma response. And the reason we cannot have so, okay, maybe let me back up a little bit. I want everyone out there to know that we don't always have full memories, if if any, from our trauma, okay? And here's the reason why. When we are put, placed into a position of fight, flight, freeze, and we go into freeze, right? We can't, we, we are threatened. We can't run away. We can't fight back. There's no other option. We freeze. And it's out of that freeze state that they believe PTSD or a trauma response is born, now, when we go into that free state, we can dissociate. And most people who dissociate have what's known as dissociative amnesia, which is when I don't remember the things that happened when I was in that state of dissociation. So when my brain pulls the ripcord and is like, I'm out of here, wow, that's too much. I may have spotty memory. I may not have any memory um, at all. I may have only body memories. Everyone's going to be different. It depends on how our brain and body processed what happened to us. Because if our brain is like, I'm out, peace out, Boy Scout, not coming back, then it won't be able to even process what took place. And that quote unquote memory that we don't have is stored in the emotion part of our mind and not in the hippocampus where we know other memories are stored. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Now, I'm not a neurologist or a neuroscientist, so you can look up more stuff about the emotion center of the brain and memory storage in the brain. I actually talk about it a lot. I did a ton of research for my book, Traumatized, and there's a whole chapter just on memory storage and trauma memory storage. But when we are dissociated, it's there, it's very frequent, very uh, common that we don't have any memory. So we're not able to retrieve it it's not there. It's like uh, looking in your closet for a shirt that you threw away months ago. It's not there. Or I guess a better analogy would be looking in your shirt or looking in your closet for a shirt that you never bought. You just thought maybe you did because you remember feeling it. You remember thinking that you liked it, but you never bought it. And you keep digging in that closet looking for it and it's not there. It never was. And that's that memory. And yes, it sucks. 
And we're going to think, oh, I'm making it up. I'm making this into a bigger deal than it is. Or maybe this never really happened to me. I have a couple of things, a couple of ideas for you. Number one, who in their right mind would make that up? And who, I'd love to know. I'd love to hear from one person who, who actually made up body memories and flashbacks and dissociation. I've never had a patient make any of those up and I don't actually think it's possible. I mean, maybe we'll get some like antisocial personality person or narcissist who like tries to pretend. I've never, because it's uncomfortable and it's terrible and you're only the one that experiences them in half the time. You don't tell people in your life about them all the time. You tell your therapist maybe when they ask, but it's not like, right? So let's just consider that. Then second, The second thing is, is I want you to start using some bridge statements to challenge these unhelpful thoughts and thought processes. Like it's not helpful for you to think that you're making it up or that your responses aren't valid or that you're being dramatic. So every time you have one of those thoughts, I want you to use a bridge statement. Remember, bridge statements don't have to be positive. They just have to not suck as bad as the ones that you're having now. So instead of having going into this self-deprecating spiral, let's use a bridge statement. And maybe that first bridge statement is like, you know what? I'm open to changing how I talk to myself about this because right now it sucks, right? It's not negative. It's not positive. It's kind of just neutral. And then maybe we move into a place where it's more like, you know, I'm open to the belief that memories, memories can be stored in the emotion part and not in the actual like part of our brain that stores other memories. And so maybe that's why I only have the body memories. Hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I could be making it up, but maybe, right? So we're just moving ourselves out of that spiral that we're caught in by allowing ourselves to be open to the thought that what we're experiencing could be real, maybe. And it could be valid how we feel, maybe. Just be open to it. Because me telling you that it's valid and that it's okay isn't going to help with that thought process. We have to challenge it. And so, yeah, those are my, my ideas and hopefully that helps. Okay. There's a comment on this says follow-up. Can memories start to come back while doing trauma therapy? 100%. I have never fully forgotten my trauma, but I only have a few memories of it. I know there's a lot that I've forgotten. My life is blank from the ages of seven to 10 to 11. And I don't remember much of any memories, good or bad. That's very common too. Can even good memories come back if dealing with the trauma? Yes. Okay. That's the end of that question. There's a, um, I think there's only one more add on. Now, I love this question because yes, memories can come back. So remember I've talked about how trauma memories can be like, if you ever watch friends, it's like Monica's closet where she keeps everything she doesn't know what to do with. And we can all have that in our head where we kind of just shove those feelings that we don't know how to deal with or those experiences that are overwhelming into this closet and like press it closed, Right close it up, throw away the key. I don't want to get back in there. But then when we go into therapy, it's like we can bust that closet open and all this stuff can come flooding back. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to have all these memories come flooding back, but we can have body memories that come flooding back. We can have little blips of emotion. We can feel kind of emotionally volatile. We can dissociate more and not even know why. We can have all this stuff come up. And as we work through the trauma and therapy, it's almost like we're piecing together these memories little by little, or what I like to call like a trauma timeline, where we might not be able to fill it in right away. But as we work, we can piece together, oh, okay, well, I have this one memory, you know, 
around this time because I remember we had this car and I had that when I was in seventh grade. I think I asked my mom and she said it was seventh grade. So I had to be around that age, right? We can slowly put some things in. As we work in therapy, we can slowly piece things together and memories can come back. And this applies to good and bad memories because the thing about our memory is if we had, let's say, I don't know, when I was seven was the year I was abused. But I also went to Disneyland that year for the first time as a kid. And I also moved house. You know, my parents and I moved a state away or something. Let's say all that happened in, when I was seven. It can all get wrapped up into that dissociative state, especially, but not always, if that abuse happened first and then those things happen later. Sometimes we can struggle to come back into our bodies and so we cannot have any of those memories. Other times our brain tries to just kind of wipe out any of the things that happened around it kind of as a way of protecting us from, un, I don't know, unveiling or, or discovering the traumatic memory or the abuse. It's, it's a protective mechanism. So yes, good memories can get wiped out with the bad. It's almost like we over protect when it comes to our stress response and our brain reacting with dissociation. It can like blanket out and knock out a lot of memories. Um, so they can all kind of come back when you're doing that work in therapy. Okay, I think that is, yeah, can good memories come back? Yes, okay. I think that's it. Now, there was a comment on this says, as an add-on, I'm not sure if it's relevant, but I was sexually assaulted two times by two different people when I was 18 um, at the end of the year, last year, of, or the last year of school, before our exams in Australia, it's the HSC. There was a party and I got extremely drunk and I passed out and some friends put me to bed. I remember bits and pieces from the first one. I kept coming in and out of consciousness, but I couldn't control my movements. And the second one, I froze and then dissociated, of course. I mean, how terrifying. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I don't know if it involved just these two guys or if more came in. I told one of them a few years ago and he apologized, but he said something along the lines of, I was drunk too. And you know, you don't know the full story. And this makes me question myself. Like, what did I do that I don't remember? I feel like what I do remember, I can't trust. And perhaps I made it all up. I'm in my mid twenties and had so many issues with intimacy. And I don't say no anymore when it comes to sex. I just freeze any touch. And I'm usually very uncomfortable. Oh, any touch. I'm usually very uncomfortable with. I don't trust myself, my memories and my decisions. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, and drunkenness or unconsciousness is not consent. And that guy saying, you don't know the full story can fuck right off. Um, I'm going to punch him in his throat. Uh, okay. Um, my best advice to you is to get into therapy as soon as possible. I know in Australia it can be kind of tricky and there might be a wait list and things are online, blah, 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 blah. I do know better help and talk space are available worldwide. Um, I link better help in my, the description of all my videos. I have many, uh, members of our community who have utilized it in Australia and found it helpful. We need to get you some, some therapeutic support because we need to process through this. We need to start working it through and piecing together what we know and don't know and, and bridge statementing ourselves out of this, like, I don't trust my memories. I don't trust myself kind of things. There's just a lot to unpack here and you really need support. And I would hope that Australia has some kind of support for, you know, sexual assault victims. Like sometimes when we go into these like specific niches, like trauma or sexual assault or, um, you know, childhood abuse, sometimes we can find some organizations that offer free resources or more therapy. I think there's one in Australia called blue something that someone else in our community was trying to access. And I know they do have a little bit of a wait list, but maybe that's something we could get on anyway. I really, really 
encourage you super strongly to get into some therapy and support so we can process through what happened because fuck those guys, man, what a bunch of assholes. It's so terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you because we can heal from this and you can go on to have a happy, healthy sex life. Um, I know that the Courage to Heal workbook is mainly focused on like childhood sexual trauma, but I find the last couple of chapters to be really helpful when we're trying to find, this will be in the future, but it's when we're trying to find a way to have a healthy, happy sex life. Um, so you might, you know, want to pick that up as you work through it with your therapist a little bit later on, but we're going to have to process it through. This might mean we do some EMDR or exposure therapy or any of those things. All of those can be really beneficial and help you work through it because just trust me, it can and will get better and they don't deserve to take any more from you. And frankly, I just want to knock both those guys out and throw them in a hole, a bunch of losers. Okay, let's move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, I'm hoping that I can keep this short. You're fine. It says, I was raised by verbally and emotionally abusive parents who raised me to fully believe that no one could possibly like me. I'm so sorry. Oh my God. They don't even like me and made that very clear. I now struggle to believe in unconditional love. Of course, you've never known it. How could you believe in something you've never known and therefore cannot give 100% of myself? I am in a happy marriage, but I struggle to give 100% of myself to my husband out of the assumption that he'll probably leave one day, even though, like I said, happily married. I don't even know where to begin trusting people. I have a very unique slash specific personality, so I feel very misunderstood by others, and I try best to mask it in order to be liked. I just posted about this on Instagram. The urge to mask it in order to be liked. It's all very exhausting, and any kinds of word, any advice or words of encouragement would be so appreciated. Oh, and what kind of attachment would you consider this? Sounds like anxious avoidance, to be honest. I don't want to get close to anyone out of fear that they will leave, but I also wish more than anything that I was capable of connecting with others. It's a strange place to exist. Thank you for this whole podcast. I love hearing everyone's stories and it makes me feel a little closer to human. Now, could be anxious avoidant. It also could be what we would, uh, I want to make sure I say this right, because there's four styles of attachment if you don't know. And um, I it could be the disorganized because because it is kind of like you want to be close, but you don't at the same time. But my gut really says it's like the, the anxious avoidant only because of the fact that, that you, it's like, you're too afraid they're going to leave. And so like disorganized. Um, so let me just read you a little bit. And I'm just, this is just from like a clinic website. They talk about it. Okay. It says disorganized attachment, so this is disorganized, is a combination of avoidant and anxious. Um, It says, you know, children who fit into this group tend to display intense anger and rage, and they can break toys and behave in other violent ways, and they also have difficult relationships with their caregivers. So you can avoid intimate relationships. So you're married, and most of my disorganized people are kind of more isolated, okay? Now, anxious... um, Anxious avoidant is children who developed under the avoidance style learn to accept that their emotional needs are likely to remain unmet and continue to grow feeling unloved and insignificant. And I feel like that is more what you're experiencing where you just feel like I'm just never going to be good enough and he'll probably leave one day. And so that's why I would say that it's more of the anxious avoidant. Now, my advice to you is a couple of things. Number one, if you're not already, please get into therapy. I cannot encourage you enough because what I I think where I would start with you instead of starting on the like 
trying to uh, give yourself 100% to your husband is more letting you give 100% of yourself to yourself. And what I mean by that is I want to try to build your self-confidence. That would be like my goal. Uh, And that's our end goal, right? And then we work back from it. And so some of the things that I would want you to do would be to try try a new activity that you can do on your own that you can get good at. This could be anything from cooking to knitting to, uh, I don't know, podcasting to writing to reading to organizing to anything, anything. Just get better at it and work at it and do it, do it, you know, relatively frequently so that you can get better at it. And then, you know, noticing yourself talk and using bridge statements to change those little by little, because what we're really doing is building your confidence, but we're also helping you heal from the emotional abuse and neglect that you receive from your parents. And that will also come into play. And that would be some of the stuff that I would probably help you put together a trauma timeline if there is one to be put together, or if we feel like it was just continual. And I would want you to, you know, tell me some of the frequently stated things. I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. I guess abusive statements that you receive from your parents over and over again, because we need to be able to check our facts and argue back with bridge statements and be aware of how often we tell them to ourselves and all of that stuff. Um, But getting into therapy will really, really help because you can overcome this, but we can't just white knuckle it and think that we have to mask who we are for people to like us because that's not true. Everybody can find their crowd and you just have to be okay with knowing that we're not for everybody. No one is. I'm not for everybody. You're not for everybody, but we are for some people and those are our people. And we want to get to know those people and we want them to really know us because that's when true connection and intimacy can be found. Now, it's going to take some time, but with the right support, it can and will get better. And I think that's fucking awesome, right? That it can get better. And and that will allow all this stuff to kind of fall into place. So start, you know, maybe obviously looking into seeing the therapist, but start something new, get better at it and start noticing how you talk to yourself. Start writing down some of those common phrases and let's check our facts on those. See if we have any that aren't just thoughts, thoughts are not facts. And then if we can use some bridge statements to make them just kind of more neutral or just open to the fact that they maybe could be more neutral and not so bad. Let's start there. Okay. Now, there was a comment on this that says, hi, I have a problem trusting people and letting them completely into my life. I keep a lot of myself because of fear of how they would react or even worse, how they will make me feel out of place, misunderstood and judged. I grew up with a controlling and smothering mother and I learned to keep secrets from her and sometimes to lie. That's what happens when parents like over parent or like helicopter parents, children feel smothered and controlled. And so they lie and, you know, never feel understood or free to be themselves. And now I do the same with the people around me and mostly with my best friend and my other friend and my therapist. How can we feel comfortable around them and let them completely in? This is a great question too, because it can be hard to let people in and we can feel like we have to keep people at arm's length in order to protect ourselves. But because you grew up, you know, with such a controlling and smothering mother and you found that it was your, it was easier for you to not trust people and to keep people out because that allowed you to be you. And so what I would honestly, uh, my, my advice to you would be to consider the, like, it's like weighing your pros and cons, but I always like to think of it as like best case, worst case. So consider what would happen if you let your therapist in to see who you were. What is it that you think they're going to see? What is the worst case, best case? What's the most likely case? And then I might even as a separate 
although similar homework assignment, is to consider what these layers of letting people in are. When you say you don't trust people, like what is it that you don't share? Do you think that you're never yourself or you're only yourself when you're alone? What does that look like? How does you alone differ from you out in the world around people? I want to get a better gauge for what that means because once we kind of know these differences, okay, this is me alone, being myself, this is me out in public around other people, the differences are this. Then in that this difference, can I kind of in a hierarchical way, meaning from like easiest to let people see to the most like intimate, embarrassing, can never tell people things, how can we put those in that scale of, you know, zero to 10 kind of, and then how can we slowly tippy toe in to share some of that with our therapist or our friend or whoever we want to share with first? I think therapist is usually the safest to go with first, but completely up to you. And can we let them in on those little layers and see how it goes? It's like we're testing the waters. And that's the best way we have to prove to our brain and probably our nervous system because it's like feeling really anxious and worrying that people are, you know, going to control us or smother us or whatever. Once we kind of try it out, then, oh, my doggies come to visit. Then we can prove that it's okay and that it's safe and they're not going to like hate on us and they're not going to um, freak out and do all that. But we have to prove it to ourselves by trying it out. It's like exposure therapy little by little. I know that's uncomfortable. I know it's not ideal, but trust me when I tell you that it's super effective and it's, it's really the only way out of this where we won't have to be in therapy forever and we don't have to keep going back. It's something that we can process through and really help us live our life better. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Katie, you've talked about repressed memories. Lots about memories um, today. But can you be traumatized from a situation that you wouldn't usually remember? Like, for example, if someone did something to you when you were sleeping or when you were a baby. Also, can you be traumatized from something that you thought was completely normal? Like if an adult asked you to change in front of them and you didn't think anything about it. If the answer is yes, could you please explain how and why? Thank you so much. Now, this is an interesting question. And the truth is we can be traumatized from something that we don't remember. Like if you were a baby and you don't have actual memories, because we know we don't form long-term memories till around the age of five. There are a few exceptions. We can have little bits sometimes, but it's not very common. We still have those body memories. It's like, that's why I love the book, The Body Keeps the Score dog's ringing the doorbell again. But that's why I love the the book, The Body Keeps the Score, because it talks about how trauma can affect our bodies as a whole. And not to get too doom and gloom, but if you've ever uh, read the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, it doesn't matter if we have those memories or not. If something happened to us and we have the body memories or the flashbacks or whatever, you know, we struggle with dissociation, all of that can play a role in our overall physical health. So, Yes, you can still be traumatized even if you don't remember something, okay? Sleeping, baby, any of that stuff. Now, you can be traumatized after the fact of something that you didn't realize was abusive until later because it's that realization that then causes us to maybe struggle to process, feel overwhelmed, shut down, dissociate, and have PTSD symptoms down the down the road. Um, and that's happened for a lot of people, a ton of my patients, a ton of our community members, where we will... And that's also kind of sometimes where the shame comes in because like we could have participated freely because we didn't think anything was wrong with it or we didn't really understand 
you know, what that was that we were doing. And that realization when we're older is what makes it even more traumatizing. And even if in the moment we maybe didn't fear for our life and safety because we didn't even know what was happening, that doesn't make it less harmful. And so it's really more about what what our nervous system, our brain, our body, what we process and what we think it's more about that. And that's what can cause it to be traumatizing. Does that make sense? Because if you remember, in order to be traumatized, we have to fear for our own safety, or the safety of someone else. And it can even happen when we like watch something online and we, cause there's so much live streaming and horrible things people can just like stream these days. They like, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Twitch and they can't like shut it down fast enough. Right. And so all of that can still be traumatizing. We don't have to have it happening in the moment to us directly. Um, it can be something that we recall as an adult and then we're like, oh my God, and that's terrible. And it can, you know, make us feel threatened even as adults. Like just consider for anybody out there who's like, I don't believe this, Katie's losing her mind. Imagine, imagine it was you. Imagine re- remembering all of a sudden like changing in front of a family friend or something, them asking you to take off your clothes and to change or like bringing you clothes and then saying like, I'll wait in here while you change with me. Like things as a kid, you're like, okay, you don't think about it and you do it. But then as an adult, when you look back, you're like, oh my God. And then you like fear for a little you and you hate it and it can gross you out. You can get caught in this like shame spiral, disgust, guilt, embarrassment. Well, I did it. And why did I do that? Why did I participate? And it's all my fault. And all of that really can still be our trauma response. It can still cause us to have PTSD. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says really interesting question. Question. Also, is it possible that you can have a panic attack in a dream? 100%. I did not only dream that I had one, but I also really felt like it was real. I've never struggled with anxiety, more like the opposite. My depression makes me really numb to any kind of fear. And I'm never really scared of things that I used to, um, I used to, which makes me miss it. This makes me wonder why I suddenly feel that kind of, or felt that kind of fear in a dream. We can have panic attacks in our dreams. It's usually not always, but it's usually born out of trauma. And when we have kind of what I would call like flashback dreams or trauma dreams, where we're like reliving part of, or the entire traumas that happened in our life, trauma or traumas, plural, many, um, it can push us into a panic attack. And it might be because your depression, well, and also let's just remember the depression, anxiety in the brain, we know the um, the areas of that respond, because if you don't know there are brain scans, you can even just Google this, that there are brain scans showing an anxious brain and a healthy brain, a depressed brain and a healthy brain, and depression and anxiety areas are right next to one another. And I believe that is why they like kind of are related in a way where our depression can be really bad and our anxiety can be low and they kind of teeter totter or they can happen at the same time where we have like irritable depression. And so I truly believe that that might be why, even though you find yourself to be more depressed, that this is happening in your dream, that you are feeling super anxious in your dream. And that might be kind of that, that like irritable depression coming out in you. Or I might, you know, because panic attacks aren't just fear-based and they're not, they're not when we're scared of things. Panic attacks, honestly, we don't, usually know where they come from. Sometimes we do. A lot of times like they come out of nowhere. So don't feel like it has to be because you're scared or uh, even feeling anxious when you go to bed. It, It might be just a symptom of your irritable or anxious depression. And it can be something that's just coming out because of maybe what you're dreaming or your nightmares or something too. And 
Yeah, but it also could be that you just dreamed that you had one. You can do that too. Um, I've had patients tell me that, you know, we can dream all sorts of things, but I want people to know that you can have a panic attack in your dream. You can in your sleep, really, is what it is. In your sleep, you have a panic attack because our system gets overwhelmed. Because a lot of times, I mean, every time, because I almost always remember my dreams, dreams feel real, right? So we can get overwhelmed and get really, you know, maxed out and have a panic attack in our dream. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hi, Katie, happy new year. Happy new year. It says, why do I dislike being healthy so much? I've had to keep eating enough um, instead of heavily restricting like I normally would because of the physical demands of my job and staff shortages mean extra pressure to stay healthy. I'm frustrated as I'm not as small as I normally am. Oh, the judgment of an eating disorder voice. I feel torn between what I want and what I need. I know it's right to be this version of me. I'm just struggling to accept it. And I feel so ashamed of what I look like. How do you let this go? I hope you had a lovely break and thank you. Of course, of course. And I did. Um, my first order of business with this would be to your, your journal. This is your homework. Your journaling homework is to tell me, to write it out just like you're telling me. What is it that you get from being small? What does it mean to be small? What's the value that you place in that? There's some value in there. Why do we value that? Also, maybe like in the same breath or in the same journaling, you know, prompt or page. Why would it be bad to be big? And what is this focus on smallness keeping us from thinking about? Are there times when we really focus on like not eating and being small? What's happening then? Is it someone controlling a part of our life? Is it trauma from our past? Is it when we feel like other things in our life are just out of control, going mad? Is it because of the pandemic and the whole world feels like it's going mad? Are we just grasping at straws on anything to help us feel more stable? Hmm. You know, Um, I'm really curious about what it means to be small. Why is that something that we value? What would it mean if you're just normal, medium? What would that mean? What would that say about you? What if you were large? Hmm. What would that say about you? I I always want to dig into these belief systems because eating disorders serve a purpose. They help us cope. So that's kind of the part of like, what are we not thinking about? Because we're thinking about this, right? We kind of have to figure out the root, but we also have to figure out what our belief systems are around the eating disorder stuff. Why do we believe that that is better? Why do we believe that that is important? What is it about that we think, what does that say about us, right? Because you're saying like you are ashamed of what you look like. I would argue that maybe you didn't even like what you look like before because if I know eating disorders and as well as I think I do, it's never enough. And they always tell us we're stupid, ugly, not good enough, not sick enough, not trying hard enough, not doing this enough, not restricting, not overeating, whatever. They're just, they lie, 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 shit talk, shit talk, shit talk. And that's why they're so hard to get out of and hard to believe that we are worth it and we can get better or that, you know, it is bad enough to reach out for help. So anyways, I don't think it's that you dislike being healthy so much. I think it's what healthy represents for you. And so define that for me and tell me why, why you believe that. What is it about that? What, you know, let's just be curious. Try to explain it to me. Like, I don't even speak your language. What does that mean? Why would that be bad? Why would that be good? Sometimes we're surprised what we find when we're just a little curious about our belief system. And so honestly, digging into that why and 
pushing back. It's in order to let that go. That's really like, how do I let go of my eating disorder? And in order to do that, we have to make it not necessary. Like it doesn't have a job anymore. And the best way we can do that is by figuring out that why, right? Is it the the control? Is it the other things in our life feel completely crazy and we need to do something to help us feel stable? Is it abuse? Um, is it our family was really weird about food? Was our Because that can affect us too. Is my mom like a yo-yo dieter talking about body and food all the time? Or did our mom put us on a diet from a young age and tell us we were heavy? Like what kind of, that's abuse also, by the way. But you know, what happened? Why, why is this, why do we need this? What, what does it, what purpose does it serve? Okay. A comment on this is literally this. I'm always so mad that whenever I have to, or that um, whenever I go to have a snack or meal, I never fancy the healthy options. Like, why am I like this? I used to restrict a lot and now I've been stuck binging, oh, for well over a year now. So I don't, I know I don't have a good relationship with food, but how can I get myself to try and fancy the healthier options sometimes? This is so interesting. Like I will sometimes force myself to have healthier options or say fruit for a snack, but I'm never satisfied. And I have what I fancied afterward anyway. Between the gaining weight and knowing that I'm not eating healthy, I cannot stand being the way that I am. Any advice on how to try and get over this is very much appreciated. Thank you for everything you do, Katie. I love this question. Both options are fine. And the problem that we have with this is what we're telling us. It's our relationship with food. So we're telling ourselves about healthier versus unhealthier options. And even that belief that we can't have the unhealthier one leaves us to want it and potentially, most likely, overeat on it. And it's really getting us out of this like binge restrict cycle. And it's very normal for eating disorders to kind of swing around and change shape and be like binging, restricting, uh, purging. We can have all sorts of different behaviors and kind of swing around and pick and choose as we work through it, as we try to heal and manage it, right? And so when it comes to this, it sounds like restriction used to be the way that you were and now we're binging. And just like almost every eating disorder patient I've ever had ever in my history, we hate it and we're mad and we're frustrated. And we're probably doing a binge restrict cycle, meaning that these healthier, quote unquote, healthier options, we probably do really well in the morning, afternoon, then comes around nighttime, kind of more hungry because I haven't ate enough today. I didn't eat everything that I needed to eat. My body doesn't have the energy to do what it needs to do. I've also just not been satiated or satisfied with anything that I ate. Shit. And I'm also tired. So I'm more hungry because I've been starving myself all day and now I'm tired. So I'm more vulnerable to these urges. And then guess what? I overeat and I binge. And then we start all again tomorrow and we do it over and over and over. And I'm here to tell each and every one of you that the only way to break ourselves out of this is first, obviously, see a therapist, consider a dietitian if you can afford one. If you can find one, I highly, highly recommend it. We have to eat every three to four hours and we have to stop judging food as healthy or unhealthy. I know people will fight me and be like, but there are foods that are, I shouldn't eat French fries every day. You, here's a challenge to anybody who thinks that or wants to say that. I challenge you to eat nothing but this unhealthy food. Let's just say French fries for a week straight. I challenge you. That's all I want you to eat. Nothing else. Do you see where I'm going with this? You're not going to want it. I know you're like, I'm going to over, I'm going to eat this so much. I'm going to be so, tell your eating disorder voice, shut the fuck up. You're not going to do that. You're going to eat it when you crave it and that's okay. 
Your body's telling you it craves it, but guess what? When you give your body what it craves and you haven't restricted it all day long, you'll eat a normal helping of a thing like, I don't know, fries, pizza, burgers, cookies, whatever your fear foods are. You'll eat a normal amount because you're not, you know, you can have more tomorrow if you want it. And you are, you aren't starving because you ate regularly. So if we eat every three to four hours on items that taste good, and yes, I will be honest with you. A lot of my patients coming out of this binge restrict cycle for the first, maybe a week, maybe a week will find themselves finally eating and allowing themselves, giving themselves permission to eat the foods they couldn't. But then we kind of get in this rhythm. Like I'll even be honest. Sometimes Sean and I, we're traveling. Um, there just won't be a variety of options. So I'll get stuck eating like, let's say like a lot of ham sandwiches. And guess what? I crave something different. I want pizza. I want a salad. I want a cookie. I want not a ham sandwich. And that's going to happen to you too. You're going to not want some of those foods. You're going to crave, you know, I don't know, a Caesar salad or a a ham sandwich or whatever. You're going to crave something different, a stir fry maybe. Because we get bored of food and we need a variety. And that's why the real way to heal and the real way to get over this is to stop saying foods, good or bad, healthy, not healthy, because that's only going to make us judge our decisions. And then we're not going to feel satisfied or satiated. So we're going to eat more. It's that binge restrict, it's that fucking binge restrict cycle. So I challenge you every three to four hours, eat what sounds good, eat what you want, give yourself, I give you full permission, but give yourself full permission. Try it for two weeks. Can you do that? I promise you, you will not want French fries every day. It will be okay. And then we'll actually be satisfied with what we ate. It's amazing. I tell you, Um, but get a therapist. And there's also the intuitive eating workbook. It's in my Amazon shop. So you go to Amazon forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's in there. And that might be able to help you too. Now there was a last comment on this says, wow, I can relate to this so much. I sometimes want my depression to get even worse. Why? Why can't I be happy when I have a good week? Sometimes it can be scary to get better. Getting better can mean that maybe we don't have the excuse that we used to have for having shit days or that we've wrapped ourselves up into this mental illness defining who we are. So if I don't have my depression or my eating disorder, who am I, right? And that can be really difficult too. Or perhaps then we think, oh, I don't deserve help then if I get better. And I really like my therapist and that attachment issue is coming up and I don't want to stop. There can be a lot wrapped up in the why I don't want to get better, but that's kind of why it can be hard. Not to mention that sometimes having a good day or a good week when we have depression can feel uncomfortable. We're not really used to feeling better. So we're like, what the hell is this? Or we can shit talk ourselves and be like, I'm not deserving of feeling better, right? There can be a ton of reasons, but the truth is, that it's, it's good news that it's getting better. Let your therapist know that you're having these thoughts, that this is what's happening, that you don't even allow yourself to enjoy it because that's just, an, that's better. In, that's more information so that they can better assist you because now they, you know, they're seeing a fuller picture of what's going on. Um, yeah, I guess that answers it. If you have any others, let me know. Let's move on to question number seven. And this question says, hey, Katie, how do I stop thinking about missing my therapist? Ever since I terminated, she moved elsewhere. I still keep thinking about her. The therapeutic relationship was one of the closest and most consistent that I've had. I'm an introvert, so it's hard to turn to friends and family. How can I get over my therapist? Thanks. It can be hard. That relationship can be the best one we've had, and we can not imagine, you know, doing anything without them. And 
a couple of things that I encourage you to do. I, I encourage you to look into and maybe write about what made that relationship so great, the things about her that you love, the things that made it super supportive. Um, and then I would encourage you to find another therapist because it's not just that therapist that could help you. Another therapist would be consistent and close with you just like she was. I know it might be hard and we think she's the only one. I challenge you to push back against that and to try to see someone because we we can hold on to this therapeutic relationship and like put it on a pedestal thinking like nothing else could be ever be like this and I'm going to miss them forever and I'm just never going to get over this and we won't if we don't let ourselves. But I believe the way to get over this is actually to prove to yourself that we can have that relationship with someone else and that's also really good when it comes to you not feeling like you can turn to friends and family and stuff like that. It'll prove to you because I believe somewhere in there I'm pushing back against this introvert part of you. I want you to be able to prove to yourself that you are worthy of healthy relationships and that people will like you. I find suspiciously a lot of people who will be like, I'm just such an introvert are actually just struggling with self-confidence and self-worth. It's fine to need alone time and to find socializing exhausting, but there's a big difference between that and not turning to friends and family. I feel like there's probably some you know, worry about sharing who you are with someone and having them not accept that. And so I would want to talk about that in therapy and want to process that. I'm sorry, my dog barked. Um, she probably sees a squirrel. Um, but I think that that's the way that we kind of work through it. That's the way that we move past it. And that's the way we get over it. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Let's move on to question number eight. And this says, morning, Katie. Good morning. It says, what do you do when, the, when thought stopping doesn't seem to work anymore? What do you do when you know what you're supposed to tell yourself, but can't get yourself to believe it? I've worked with a CBT therapist back many years ago to help with social anxiety. And for the most part, it seemed to help. I've struggled off and on with social anxiety, but I um, also have generalized anxiety disorder and dysthymia. Now, dysthymia is when we have like a low grade depression. Um, it's, I don't even like to necessarily call it dysthymia because, or low grade depression, but it's, it's essentially when we have, we can like white knuckle it in life, but we still feel kind of lethargic and just don't enjoy things. And it's really debilitating and it has to, in order to get that diagnosis, it has to last for two years. So it can be super debilitating. Okay. So it says I'm back in therapy dealing with past trauma and I find old bad habits creeping in. The negative thoughts are almost overwhelming at times. And in the past, I could usually contradict them and make them stop. But no matter how hard I try to say no or to stop or to try to change the thought, the negative thought comes back with claws and teeth and usually wins the battle. I know what I'm supposed to tell myself, but it's like, I can't believe the positive anymore. Why is it so difficult? I love this question. It's because you're back in therapy dealing with trauma. I know that sucks. It's a shitty answer. But when we're dealing with something that I would argue is the reason for the other things, the dysthymia, the GAD, and the intrusive thoughts. I think trauma is the reason. It can stir it all up and make us feel worse before we feel better. And that's shitty. And I wish it wasn't so, but because we often are just stuffing down that trauma response and trying to manage, right? You're like thought stopping, thought stopping, using all your tools when we dig into that deep well of pain and upset and things that happen that we never told anybody, it's going to make the other symptoms worse. And our old tools, frankly, just aren't going to work. And so let your therapist know this is happening. That's number one. Number two, another tip I have for you is instead of trying to thought stop by like changing the thought or doing those things, can we distract 
I don't know if that works, but try to distract a little bit. And then I also kind of encourage you to do some things like uh, shake your body out, change your body's temperature, splash cold water in your face. Like I know we talk about those as grounding techniques, but sometimes those can also jar us and like snap us out of the spiraling thoughts that aren't helpful. Um, but let your therapist know that they're they're happening. It's very normal. I know it feels shitty and we don't want it to come back. And you can continue to use your tools, but we're going to try to maybe have to come up with other tools to help. And like I said, the changing of the temperature and the the distraction. And I have a whole video. If you look up 25 coping skills, Katie Morton on YouTube, it will come up. Um, and that can you know, hopefully give you an idea of some things that you can try to see what works for you. But I also find um, another, and these are kind of grounding techniques too, but like counting up and down and like looking for things in the room that have a certain number of things. So we're counting like, okay, I need to come up with 10 things. Okay. This has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, I know that sounds silly, but they call it scattered counting and that can sometimes help people too. And yeah. And then also, you know, you can put in a podcast. Uh, maybe we do some ASMR. I don't know if there's other things that calm your system. I'm just trying to think outside the box for you, but um, let your therapist know. And that's unfortunately why it's getting so difficult. And I'm sorry. Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, how do you learn to feel safe expressing feelings? Ooh, because of abuse, I feel it's not safe to express emotions or needs. I also don't feel worth. Um, oh, I also don't feel worth someone caring about me. How do I get through this? Now, uh, these are a couple, these are obviously in response to the trauma. This is an abuse response and it can be hard to feel safe expressing feelings. And so what I would encourage you to do is I like to think of feelings kind of like there's layers, like if you want to, you know, quote Shrek, we can be like, is got, they're like onions. They have layers. Ogres have layers, um, but we have layers. And I want you to write out, like go to feelingswheel.com pull up the feelings wheel or a feelings chart, find something that speaks to you and has some words on it that we kind of maybe like, or maybe we, but I like the feelings wheel. So maybe start there. Anyways, I want you to pick out emotions, not the ones that you're feeling, just pick an emotion. And I want you to write about how you describe it to someone who's never felt it before and maybe how it feels for you. If those are different, sometimes they're not. Start doing this for some emotions that don't feel too scary to do it with. And we're going to get slowly, but surely better. And the ones that are kind of scary to express, I want you to tell your therapist, if you're not in therapy, please get into therapy. We need to, if you can find a trauma specialist, that would be wonderful. But let your therapist know of the feelings that you have a tough time even acknowledging. And we can get really creative in this way of feeling safe. Like I've had patients do some collages to show me what anger looks like, or even happiness. The thing that you might find surprising is that what we would deem good emotions and bad emotions can be equally difficult because if I'm feeling good, then something bad must be just right around the corner, right? And it can be just as upsetting or triggering. And if I'm feeling bad, well, I'm feeling bad. Um, and so just be curious about emotions instead of trying to feel them and feel safe. And I think the goal, instead of using the word safe, I would encourage you to change it to neutral, meaning not reactive to it. I can allow the feeling to come in and I can acknowledge it for what it is because I've been writing about them and using my feelings wheel, right? To identify and write some things out. But I don't have to react. And that neutrality can sometimes feel a little better to us, especially if we have a PTSD past and we're struggling with trauma because safe can, again, like that good feeling, we can think something bad's going to happen. 
So we don't want that either. So safe can feel unsafe almost like immediately. So we're looking for something more neutral. Um, That's the first step. And then the next would be starting to identify one feeling a day. I want you to do this for like five to 10 days. Just one feeling. What's one feeling you had today? And then we're going to work up every week or two. I want you to increase by one. I don't want you to be doing more than like, I don't know, maybe seven or eight. Five is plenty, by the way, too. But you, you know, you might get carried away and you might enjoy it and you might And I know everybody just rolled their eyes because I said enjoy it, but it might be helpful and healthy for you to start identifying them. And that's where I would start. I think so often we want to jump to the end result. Well, I just want to be safe feeling my feelings and expressing them. First, we have to get to know them. How can we express what we don't understand? And if we don't feel safe with them at all, are we even allowing ourselves to feel them? You know, so we have to start where we're at. And that would be my encouragement for that first portion. Then the second portion of the question says, I also don't feel worth someone caring about me. How do I get through this? That's going to, the best way to work on that is going to be obviously through therapy, but also through, I have a video about building self-confidence, just put self, build self-confidence, Katie Morton it should come up. Um, and they're like building mastery. I've talked about already on here where you find something that you can do and you get better at it. But also we're going to have to do some bridge statements. We're going to have to acknowledge when those thoughts that are coming in are negative about who we are and what we could mean to other people, right? We probably have a lot of automatic thoughts that are like, I'm a loser. I'm stupid. No one would like me. I'm not good at that anyways. Um, I'm and probably the deeply falsely held belief is I'm not lovable or I'm alone. And so we have to challenge those, right? We can't just let those thoughts and false beliefs live rent-free in our brain. We have to challenge them with bridge statements. And bridge statements are kind of more of that neutral stuff again, right? So instead of saying when our brain says no one's ever going to love us and we're just a total shit show and we're terrible, we can't be like, everybody's going to love me and this is amazing. People can care about me. I know they will. We're not going to believe it. A nice bridge statement would be something to the effect of I'm open to considering that I could change this, that I don't have to think like this forever. I'm open to considering that. That'd be a first one. Another one would be, you know, I do believe that other people are worth being cared for. And I'm a person too. I don't know if I'm worth being cared for, but I do recognize that some people are. I know you're thinking, Katie, this doesn't even change anything. And you're right. It's not this drastic change. It's little by little, not allowing those negative shit talking things to happen. We're arguing back with something that it's not good, but it's not bad. And we're just trying to work ourselves over into a more healthy place. So be patient with yourself. You know, it can be hard. It doesn't matter if we slip up and we let the shitty thought hang out. We just have to try again next time. And that's okay. It's a process, not perfection. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. I love you all. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always 